ask for your mercy and blessing for those that Chuck has been praying for, the those at Camelot Care Center, those that are sick among us. Uh, we know that, that Jim is now at Avamir again, and we ask for your healing and encouragement for him, that he'd be able to share with those around him, that he would seek your face, that he would find importance and a reason to exist, a reason for him being there, that he's there as your ambassador. He's not just there wishing he was someplace else. We'd ask for your, your uh, spirit to follow him in such a way that he knows why he's there. Uh, as we study your word, we ask that your spirit would teach us and that we would know why we're here, that we're here to feed on your word. We're here to feed on the person of Christ in person, that, that you are the living word of God and that you're our creator, our savior, our sustainer, our defender. You're everything to us, literally. And as this church is rooted and grounded in the faith in your word, we ask that you'd build us up to be the men and women of God you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> as Mark mentioned, we are having a baptism next week. So next week's sermon is not going to be from John chapter 6. We need to talk about faith. We need to talk about baptism and how the two work together. What's, what's baptism about? Does it do anything towards salvation? Secret answer, no. Okay, so next week we'll hear all about that. But today we need to answer some of the same questions that the people in John chapter 6 were asking. So if you turn to John chapter 6, you haven't caught on yet, that's where we're going. John chapter 6, <clears throat> the whole context is from verses 22 through 27. I'm going to concentrate on verses uh, 25 through 27 because <clears throat> these same people that Jesus had fed on the other side of the lake on the five loaves and two fishes that the little fellow had brought with him, uh, I don't know how little, he might have been a teenager, but a young man, shared his lunch with Jesus and Jesus shared it with everybody, which I love because we don't know, as we discussed on Wednesday, Wednesday night's uh, Bible study, we don't know what God's going to do with the things that he does through us. You share the Lord with somebody and they walk away and say, that was nice, and you never see him again. You think, well, gee, that was too bad. You don't know that. You know, there's, there's people that have taken that one seed that suddenly grew. They never got to talk to the person they led to the Lord again, that led them to the Lord again. But they themselves became a mighty worker for God. And there's been more than one of those. I don't know if any of you ever heard of, uh, let's see, David Livingston. Yeah, he's not exactly famous, is he? Dr. Livingston, I presume, that guy, uh, who's a great missionary. Well, you see, in Blantyre, Scotland, many years before that, there was a year in a tiny little church in Blantyre, Scotland, where only one person came to the Lord. One guy was baptized that year. But it was David Livingston, see. So that one little church and that one preacher that led David Livingston to the Lord had no idea what God was going to do with David Livingston. We don't know what God's going to do. <clears throat> that little fellow that shared his lunch with Jesus had no idea what Jesus was going to do. I, mean, I couldn't have imagined that. Here, here's my bag of lunch. Oh, you're going to feed this crowd of 5,000 plus? 5,000 men plus, it says they're, men, they're women and kids. Okay. So we've already talked about that. Well, that's where this is coming from. Those people who originally, because they had seen the miracles, wanted to take him by force and make him king, and he said, no way, and got out of their way. 
uh, now have tracked him. They got over to the other side of the lake where he is. In verse 25, this says, When they had found him on the other side of the sea, Lake Genesaret, the Sea of Galilee, <clears throat> they said to him, Rabbi, when camest thou, he- when camest thou hither? When did-, when did you get here? And Jesus didn't answer that question. He answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You just want more free food. Verse 27, labor not for the meat which perisheth. By the way, meat in the King James just means food. If he wants to say meat, like we think meat, he says flesh in the King James. So just so you know that. He says, labor not for the meat which perisheth, the food that perishes, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Then they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. Okay, there's our answer. Now, what are we going to do with this? So the title today is, What Kind of Bread Do We Seek? If any of you looked up the uh, last week's sermon notes, or two weeks ago, this was it, because I had thought this is what I was going to preach two weeks ago, and suddenly, I think the morning of, I just suddenly was impressed that no, no, you teach on, on Palm Sunday. Okay. All right, well, I'd already posted it on the website. It was there, so if, if there's any confusion, then I guess you're going to get it twice. <clears throat> As we read through this or any passage, it, it behooves us to look back and see what the context is. And here we see that the context in this case is there was 5,000 plus people who had followed him to the other side of the lake and were wanting another free meal. And Jesus confronted them saying, you're here for the wrong motives. He revealed their motives. You just want more free food. But then he reminded them of a passage from Isaiah chapter 55. Now, I didn't just read Isaiah 55, but they recognized what he was quoting. Why? Because they were Jews, because they were completely familiar with the Old Testament. Let's read, if you want to keep your finger here in John chapter 6, we flip back to Isaiah. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 55. Come on, I know where Isaiah is. Is Jerry Lame, Easy Dan, Isaiah Jeremiah Lamentation, Ezekiel Daniel. A couple of workhorses there. Jerry and Dan. Isaiah 55, starting in verse 1, verses 1 through 3. This is God speaking to Israel. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that has no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money? For that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, listen, hear me, and come unto me, hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Jesus didn't have to quote it word for word for them to recognize that that's what he was talking about. 
but they still responded with the idea of, okay, what do we do? What kind of work do you want us to do to get that free gift of God, this the eternal life? Okay, and that's what they asked. They said, "What shall we do to work the works of God?" <clears throat> so we know they understood it because they're Jews. And was it applicable the way Jesus applied it? Well, he's the author. He ought to know. By the way, he was the author of what Isaiah wrote. And he is the Lord that Isaiah saw in the throne in the temple in his vision. In Isaiah chapter 6, when it says, In the year when King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord lifted up and and high on a throne and says that his train filled the temple. And the, you saw the seraphims flying, those strange creatures with six wings and crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That was Jesus. See, and by the way, when people claim they've had a vision of Jesus or they've seen him or they've talked to him or something like that and they're saying how wonderful it was, what did Isaiah say when he saw him? Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and mine eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. He thought he was going to die because he saw Jesus. Well, people claim they've seen Jesus and had such a wonderful chat with him over a cup of coffee. I, they're lying. If you see Jesus face to face in this age, it isn't going to be fun. You'll be on your face before him. Okay. Yes, there'll come a day when we'll see him face to face and we'll glorify him, we'll worship him. But all the people in the Bible that saw him face to face outside of his earthly ministry fell on their faces before him. Even the demons did, remember. Okay. So that's who the author is, it's Jesus. That's why he had the authority to take this scripture, this remote scripture from Isaiah 55 from 800 years earlier, and apply it to these people and say, your motives are wrong. You're looking for the wrong things in life. And the people evidently understood that because they immediately asked, what shall we do to work the works of God? They apparently assumed they could earn God's favor. Now see, that's the world's whole point of view. That's how we look at things. We, we think if you want something, you earn it. Or you, you know, talk somebody and make somebody feel guilty about your circumstances and you make them give it to you. But they assumed they could earn God's favor. Now, all the world's religions teach this, virtually all of them. <clears throat> Each religion has collections of things a person can do to please God. I've, I've got a Roman Catholic Bible at home, and I'm not picking on them. It's just inside their front cover. They list about ten things you can do to earn indulgences from God, including reading the Scripture and kissing it as you're reading it, but there's a whole long list of other things, too. Sorry, folks. This is what Jesus said. This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. You place your faith in him. That's the, that's the beginning point. <clears throat> From the world's perspective, most religions are okay. They're good to live by. Okay, I could even accept that because almost all of them have a collection of nice things about them that are very similar in many cases. The problem is that God says they're hell to die by. They're okay to live by, but they're, they're hell to die by. Why? Because they're keeping you away from this faith relationship with Christ. Whatever is keeping you away from confessing your need for a Savior and coming to him on those terms only is sending you to hell. Sorry, that's the truth. 
I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. That's not it at all. What I'm saying is that a person who is not saved and who gets into one of these religions that says, here, you do all these things and God will like you, they can do those things their whole life and slide into hell without a Savior. And I'm not saying that to, to you know, pound the pulpit and talk ugly. I'm telling you what Jesus said. Broad is the path that leads to destruction and many that enter therein, and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life and few there are that find it. That's what Jesus said. So when I see these bumper stickers that encourage all the world's religion to just coexist, you seen those? What's the problem with that? Well, at least one of those religions demands that they exterminate all the people that don't agree with them and that their followers are to be the ones that do the extermination, not that their God will someday judge and blah, blah, blah. It's that they are to do that. So how can they coexist? Well, they can't. And almost all of those religions are mutually exclusive anyway. They're, they're not compatible with one another. If, if I say they're all true, then effectively I've said none of them are true. Okay. When we examine the world's religions, we can see a lot of similarities in the nice parts and how they're supposed to approach God, how they're supposed to treat other believers within their society of believers. <clears throat> Let's look at some of these. Let's look at three major ways that the world's religions deal with sin because that's where the differences come in. The, f the first one I'm going to list is almost non-existent because it's so seldom, but it's the idea that there's no such thing as right and wrong. There's no such thing as sin uh, that's purely a human construct and that the force or deity or whatever they believe in, this is, this is the central tenet of Taoism, and it would fit right in with Star Wars if you like that. <clears throat> but that this impersonal force or whatever they call the deity in their world doesn't is not at all concerned with what we think is right or wrong. What we were supposed to be doing is setting aside ego and self and just being joined to this impersonal force. Well, that teaching isn't very common. It doesn't it's not widely accepted, probably primarily because each of us is has an inborn recognition that there is such a thing as right and wrong. We know that. You surely recognize when somebody does something wrong to you. You know, we're not hypocrites enough to say there's no such thing as right and wrong, and then, but when it happens to me that it is wrong, you know, or at least I hope we're not. So it's not all that common. The next most common, still not terribly common, but it's getting more common, you'll recognize this. <clears throat> Some religions agree, well, yes, sin exists, and, and God doesn't like sin, but God is so above us and so loving and kind and, and kindly disposed towards the human race, he doesn't concern himself with sin. He's certainly not going to judge sin. You shall not surely die. Yes. Where'd you hear that one? Yeah, in the Garden of Eden. Okay, it's coming right from the pit. God's not going to judge you. He simply pleads with us to be nice to each other. We're all going to get to heaven by and by. And along with this, they usually claim that well, all paths lead to the same God. I know you've heard that. <clears throat> they say we'll all be eventually reunited with God. So this is a lot more common, but it still rings false because we also have an inborn sense of justice, that retribution should happen for bad things that wrongs need to be righted. It's not okay for it to just, hey, just let it go. It doesn't really matter. No, it's not, it's not okay. 
Okay, when wrong things happen, the things that we see in the news today, yes, God does care about that, and we know that. We know that we care about wrongs being righted, and we know that if there is a God and he's any kind of a God, that he cares about wrongs being righted too. So the vast majority of, of the world religions teach this third way, far more common, almost universal, is the teaching that sin is very real and God hates sin. God hates sin. So you have to do lots and lots of good things to overbalance and outweigh all the bad things you've already done and are still doing. So you spend your whole life doing and doing and doing and doing and doing the things, whatever it is they say you need to do. Some of the Tibetans have a, it looks like a, a wheel on a stick, and they got prayers inside that wheel, and they spin that prayer. I guess they think God reads it every time it goes by because they're spinning that thing, so they're repeating this prayer thousands and thousands of times, and they think that's gaining merit. Okay, okay. Jesus said that's vain repetition that the Gentiles do. Okay. Does that make Jesus sound intolerant no he's intolerant towards sin but he loves us he loves the human race and he wants to break us free from that bondage <clears throat> so we believe that god calls for punishment and the wrongs that should be made right and the religions teach that that's true and that we have to do lots and lots of good things to counteract the results of all the bad things we've done <clears throat> that belief completely fits our views as humans and is exactly where Jesus's audience was what must we do to work the works of God so they thought if we do enough good stuff then yeah God will like us they hope to earn God's favor through their good works but Jesus alerted them to a fourth perspective regarding sin there's a fourth way to to recognize sin and what to do with it. And this is what the Bible teaches. It says, yes, there is sin, and God hates sin, and there is nothing you can do to undo the sin you've already committed and that you're going to commit. There's nothing you can do to unbreak the law you've already broken. Now, I shared, 25 years ago, I shared just exactly what you just heard with a young fellow at work, he listened very carefully and then asked, his name was Doug Adams, by the way, not the guy that wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It was another guy, Doug Adams. Uh, he asked afterward, he says, so where does Jesus dying on the cross come in? I said, I'm glad you asked. I was delighted. I thought, great, this guy's heard enough that he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You show me four ways and it ends up no way to, to God. Where does Jesus come in? I said, I'm glad you asked. And I went ahead and shared the gospel with them, the message of salvation by grace through faith. That's what we teach, see? Because that's what Jesus taught. The salvation is by grace. You can't earn it. Grace means unearned favor. And it's accessible through faith, not through works. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is about. <clears throat> if there are truly is nothing you can do to save yourself. The God has to do it for you. Shortly thereafter, that young man moved away, moved to the East Coast of the United States, and I never saw him again, never heard from him again. And I don't know what his re final response might have been. I do know that he heard and understood the gospel. So if he wants to know Jesus, he knows where to find him. He knows how to reach out to him. He knows exactly 
what the problem is and what Jesus died for. Okay, what did he do with it? I don't know. I don't know if he's alive or dead today. It's been 25 years ago. But that's where Jesus found his audience. They wanted to know how to know God. More specifically, they wanted to know how to earn God's approval. They said, what shall we do to work the works of God? And Jesus responded with a very clear statement that faith in the Messiah, God's sent one, is what God wants from us. It says that you believe on him whom he hath sent. Well, the sent one, that means, actually that means an apostle, the anointed one is Messiah. So that's, that's who he said they were to believe in. So today, those of us who have already received the Lord might say, well, yeah, that's how I was saved. I remember that. I remember placing my faith in Jesus' shed blood at the cross. I believe that. But what about now? What do I do now? <clears throat> well, what shall we do? This is where Jesus' earlier admonition seems to fit in. He said, labor not for the meat or food which perisheth, but for that meat or food which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. <clears throat> so let's assume for a moment that we're only talking about saved people. We're talking about people who have received eternal life through the promise of Jesus, which we just read in John 5, probably a month ago, John 5, 24. Very clear explanation of how to be saved. So is there an application in this passage right here where he says, labor not for that meat that perisheth, is there an application for our lives today? Is there an application to the eternal aspect of the food we gain as the wage, or the wages we hope for in working according to God's standard today? Yeah, I think there is. Jesus teaches that our labor for God has eternal rewards. Our labor for God has eternal rewards. And that makes perfect sense. He is an eternal God who has given to us eternal life, and he's commanded us to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven. Okay, So there has to be an eternal value for our works. But does that mean that our faith began and ended at the cross? You entered in by faith, now get to work? No. No, we're still living by faith. When I was a brand new believer, there was an older Christian woman. I even remember where. It was out in uh, Gaston. I don't know if the little church even exists anymore. But she flat told me, well, yeah, you were saved by faith, but you're kept by works. What she meant is, sure, you've been born into the family of God, but if you're not good enough, your father's going to kick you out. Okay. What a, what a crushing load to put on a new believer. <clears throat> what a crippling lie to tell a new believer, because that's what it is. That's a lie from the pit. <clears throat> she was effectively saying, yes, you've been born in, but you're not, if you're not good enough, you'll be weeded out and thrown away. Okay. You know, today if somebody decided after a child was born you're not good enough and just threw them away, literally. I mean, there was a lady in Texas just two months ago. They caught on security camera dumping her newborn baby in a dumpster behind a, a what do you call it, a service station. And they found that baby alive. He'd been in there for 36 hours in sub-freezing weather, and he was alive. God, God preserved him. But we call that attempted murder today. God's not like that. Okay. You're his real child. What does God say about our new birth? 
Back in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he says, But as to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become sons of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not, after, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a father, but of God. All right, let's go back over that just a second. To them who received him, who received him for who he says he is, who believed in him, placed their trust in him, to them, he says, he gave power. Well, the word for power there is the Greek word exousia. It means authority. Remember we talked about the, the thief on the cross. And I think in the Bible study we were talking about somebody asking him, what are you doing here? You know, you don't even fit. You're a thief. You're a bad guy. They're executing you for your crimes. How did you get in here? And he looks around and says, I'm here because he said I could come, speaking of Jesus. That's the only way any of us get in, folks. I'm here because he says I can come. They're given the authority to become the children of God. It says sons in King James. The, the Greek word is technon, which means born ones. The Scottish word would be bairns. Your born ones, your offspring. That's literally what it means. So God sees you as his real child, his offspring, not some crummy little waif that he pulled in off the street and cleaned him up a little bit and said, try to stay out of trouble till supper time. No, you're his child, his real child. He's your real father. Keep that in mind. He gave it to those who believe in his name who are born, not just dragged in off the street, born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You're born of God. That's what God says about you. You got that way by believing in his name. <clears throat> you place your faith in him. And as a new believer, you're his legitimate child. He'll never kick you out. He'll never disown you. He's your real father. There was a lady in a Bible study that I taught for 20 years. By the way, Miss Bobby's teaching a Bible study. She just started a few weeks ago, and it's growing at Camelot there. I taught that one at, at Cornell Estates for 20 years, and there was a lady there who had been taught all her life, and she was in her 90s when I met her, and she was almost 100 when she died. But all her life she had been taught that if she wasn't good enough, God was going to kick her out. I, I tried so hard to teach her different, and she got so mad, she quit coming to the Bible study for several years and then came back. And the second go-around, I got to talk with her, and I asked her, so under what circumstances would you disown or abandon your children? She says, none, no matter what. They are my kids. And I said, so why do you think you're a better parent than God is? She said, I never said that. I said, you sure did. Because you said if you're not good enough, he's going to disown you. And you just told me that under no circumstances would you disown your children. And her eyes got kind of wide, and I guess it gave her something to think about because it wasn't too long after that she decided that God was not going to kick her out. She died in peace, knowing her Heavenly Father. Okay. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God. You heard the Word of God, and you placed your faith in Him, and you were saved. You're born again. That's the seed. And God says his seed remains in you in 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. You're born again by the word of God. Not only the written word of God, but the living word of God who loved you and died for you. And he says that he lives and abides forever. He lives in you. 
if the one who lives in you lives forever and abides in you forever, I'd say you're pretty secure in his promises, that his promise is good forever. By the way, he also says we're to feed on that word. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, and I'm quoting from the King James, uh, it says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If you're a newborn believer or an older believer, I don't care where you are here, if you're a believer, then you need to be feeding on God's word. If you're not hungry for God's word, there's something wrong. I've, I've spent a lot of time in old folks' homes. You know what happens when they decide they're not hungry and they quit eating? They die, okay? If you decide you're not hungry for God's word, then you're going to be effectively a walking dead person. Yeah, you're going to heaven. Yeah, you're going to be with him forever. But it's not going to have any effect in your life today. You need to be in the word. You need to be feeding on the word so you can grow thereby. That's what God says. <clears throat> so how do we work for him? That's the bottom line that these people were asking for. Well, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, as ye therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye on him. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. If I said, as you did this, so do this, what would I mean? In the same manner. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? By faith. How do you walk in him? By faith. That is how you walk with Jesus. By faith. He says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Now we just read John 1.12 and 1 Peter 1.23 that said how you receive the Lord. We're now called to walk in him by faith. Ephesians 2.10 says what the result will be. See, we always quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay, what's verse 10 say? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Oh, so if you walk in faith, then you're going to be doing the work that God has created you to do. The work's already laid out for you. All you got to do is walk with God, and he'll take you there. All you got to do is do what he's got laid out for you. You don't have to hunt it out like a, like a dog looking for a bird in the grass. You go where God says, and it'll, it'll be right there for you to do. You know, Merrill's not here, so I'm going to pick on him. Uh, a couple of weeks ago when Jim Schlegel fell off his little motor uh, electric scooter thing and broke his hip, Merrill went to the hospital the next day to visit him. Okay? I was busy. Everybody else was busy. Merrill isn't used to going to hospitals. But he went and visited Jim, encouraged him, asked, where's your Bible? He says, well, I didn't know I was going to be staying here very long, so I didn't bring it. He says, I'll go get it for you. Merrill drove back over to Avamir, got his Bible, and brought it back to him. And Jim started sharing the Lord with people around him, laying there with a broken hip. Okay. You do what he leads you to do. I was surprised to Merrill. He didn't know that God was going to lead him to do that, but he, he got a bang out of it. You know, He did what God called him to do, and it turned out good. Okay? Walk by faith. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. My old sin nature doesn't want to go visit somebody in the hospital. It doesn't want to serve somebody else's needs. It wants to do what I want to do. 
Okay, serve me. That's who's really important here. No, it's not. Okay, but my whole sin nature is demanding that every moment I'm alive. So Galatians 5.16 says, walk in the spirit. How? By faith. I'm going to walk with Jesus. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the strong desires, the lust of the flesh. We pointed out in the past that the Christian life isn't difficult. No, it's impossible. Unless the Holy Spirit does through you, lives through you. If you don't walk with Jesus, no, it's impossible. And Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. If any human being told me, without me, you're not going anywhere, I'd be going someplace else. But when Jesus says it, he's only telling you the simple truth, that if you don't allow the Holy Spirit to live through you, if you don't walk with me, him, then it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. <clears throat> This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, that's exactly where these people were when Jesus was admonishing them to change their aim in life, is you're working for the wrong things. Your motives are wrong. You're looking at the world wrong. You're looking at life wrong. He wanted them to stop the self-effort treadmill. And we've all been on it. We've all thought, what do you want me to do next? I'll do it. And it's all self-effort. At some point, I have to submit myself to God and just be doing with him what he wants me to do with him. He's not sending you out to the vineyard. He's asking you to go with him to the work in the vineyard. He's not sending you out to, to you know, labor amongst his flock. He's asking you to work with him to work amongst the flock. Okay. He's the shepherd. He's asking you to work along with him. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon me and learn of me. <clears throat> he goes on to say, uh, my, my burden is easy, my yoke, yoke is easy, my burden is light. Uh, you'll find me meek in spirit. Well, the word for yoke there, and by the way, this isn't like a yoke of an egg. It's a yoke like you put on an ox neck to haul a burden well they also put them on people's necks so I, got, I had a chance to buy one an antique person's yoke one time but they wanted a lot of money for it and it was broken anyway and I said ah, I can make one of those well I never did uh, but the thing is this particular kind of yoke he's talking about is a double one it's a double harness he's not asking you here take my yoke I'm going to send you out to work he's saying get in the other half of my yoke with me and learn from me. Now, I don't know much about horses. I can tell a horse from a donkey usually, but that's about it. And I can tell either one of them from a goat. So I'm, 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 I'm growing. I'm learning. You know, but but I, the, the people that do know horses have told me repeatedly the best way to train a young horse to like pull and harness is to harness them up in double harness with an old horse. The old harness, ho horse, the first place is bigger and stronger, and he's well-trained, and he's just going to go ahead and do what he's being told to do, and the young horse can kick and, you know, balk, and, and he's probably going to get bit by the older one eventually because the older one's going to say it's enough of that. Uh, but what happens is he quickly learns, you know, when he says, get up, we go that way. When he says, gee, you go that way. When he says, ha, you go that way. When he says, oh, you stop. Mm, pretty easy. You know, and after a while, it gets to be kind of fun because he's working alongside this old horse. 
And that's what Jesus asks you to do, to join him in double harness and work with him. See, we talked about this some time ago when I, almost all of you probably have experienced the I want to go home feeling. Yeah, I want to go home. Yeah, what I'm really saying is I want out of this harness. I don't want to work with you anymore. That doesn't sound so good, does it? I want to go home, says I'm tired, Lord, take me out of here. But what we're really saying is I'm tired of working with you. I don't want to do this anymore. Okay, that's not okay. He wants us to join him in double harness and to learn from him. He wants us to labor with him and learn from him, not to just work for him. Ephesians 1.14, also in Ephesians 4.29, it says that we've been sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.14 says, in whom you are sealed by that Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. In whom? In whom? In Jesus. Read the whole context. That you're sealed in Christ by Jesus by the Holy Spirit. You're sealed in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.29 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the, sealed unto the day of redemption. You're sealed in Christ by him. You're, you're not going to get lost, but don't make it a hard life. Don't make it a bad relationship. Make it a good relationship. Walk by faith. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. We have to voluntarily show up to do the work that he's asked us to do. He isn't going to drag you out and make you do it. I, there's cases where he has, kind of. I mean, you know, there was Jonah. Uh, somebody was pointing out, it was Sean, actually. Merrill's son, Sean, was pointing out, and he was looking up on the map. He says, where's Tarshish? I said, well, it's way over here. He says, where's Nineveh? Well, it's way over here. Which way did Jonah go? Well, he got on a boat and headed that way. And he... God provided a little water taxi. Uh, he got to come back, uh, ended up on the beach in rather uncomfortable form, probably covered with whale snot and stuff, uh, whale vomit. It says he vomited him up on the beach. But the, the fact is we still have to show up for work voluntarily. Yes, we're drafted. Yes, God's called us to work for him. But he also says you show up voluntarily. I'm not going to force you moment by moment to do what I want you to do. You choose to obey me. You choose to yield yourself. You choose to walk by faith. <clears throat> Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says that we're to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Well, that's the problem with a living sacrifice is they have to voluntarily stay on the altar. They have to voluntarily show up and do what God's asked them to do. Okay, It's an act of worship. There's always a voluntary sacrifice involved. Even though it, he's ordained the work for us to do, it still requires us to voluntarily choose to do that work. We still have to choose to walk with him by faith. And next week we're going to talk about faith and we're going to talk about baptism. We're going to have a baptism. They're going to unbolt this thing from the floor so it's not in your way and they're going to hang the microphone so I can't touch it from the water and get electrocuted. Because I remember reading about a pastor not too long ago that reached out to adjust the microphone from the, yeah, killed him. So we aren't going to do that. <laughs> either we'll get rid of the microphone and talk loud or we'll hang that microphone where I can't reach it. Uh, you don't want to make that mistake. In the meanwhile, be thinking about this. How are you going to do this? What are you going to do? Jesus told you what to do. He told you how to respond. 
His word tells you how to respond. He tells you how to walk by faith. He tells you how to choose daily to offer your body a living sacrifice to God and to walk by faith. Okay, So that's what we need to choose to do. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy as we stand before you. We, we, we know that we're saved sinners. We know that we're called to, to your service. We know that you're called as your children. We know that you've guaranteed us eternal life. But we do want to walk with you. We want to do what you've called us to do. And we ask you to open our eyes to the pathway before us so that we'd see the work that you've before ordained that we should walk in. And then just walk there to do the things you've called us to do. We ask your blessing and mercy in training us. In Jesus' name, amen.